I was young and naive. I didn't know what uh, burning flesh smelled like. But I, I'll never forget that smell now. However, we got there and it was a couple who'd been hit by a 18-wheeler and they were in a little sedan. And I think the smell probably lingers more. Earlier, I had an officer had keyed up and I couldn't make out what they were saying. So I had to do an entire roll call to make sure that every officer on that screen's okay. And I think that was really overwhelming for somebody new to a system. And I might've lived here for a little while, but I didn't grow up here in my formative years. So I didn't know the geography as well. And trying to learn all of this at once without somebody to guide you in those busy moments, you start to question yourself all the time. Am I doing the right thing? Am I going to get somebody hurt? And that's, that was a, I needed a drink after that day, that's for sure. I cannot begin to explain the stress that I would feel um, hearing, hearing Kristen, my, you know, my sister or her partner asking for help or yelling on the radio or getting on the ground, so chasing a suspect in a foot pursuit. That's stress because I, I can hear what's going on, but I can't see, I can't help. It would be a lot easier to hear about it after the fact instead of being there and feeling partially responsible that if something goes wrong, that's on me. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ACO family and Bridging the Divide listeners. I'm Kristen Green, and I'm here today with the brilliant Misty Van Curen and Joe. I am truly honored to introduce today's guest, as she is one of the people I admire the most. Born in Texas, she grew up in Northern Virginia, where she obtained her EMT basic certification while in high school. She went on to work for the Fairfax County Department of Public Safety Communications, where she has won awards for Excellence in Police Dispatch, a Meritorious Action Award, Excellence in DPSC Supervision, and a Fairfax County Outstanding Performance Award. For 14 years, she has dedicated herself to excellence in call-taking, police dispatching, fire dispatching, and training. She is the voice behind the radio, a calming fixture to guide and direct officers in a crisis. She is the voice on the phone directing citizens and CPR, hostage negotiation, and basic first aid. And she's the tone that wakes up firefighters from their slumber. She taught me what an asset an experienced and calm dispatcher can be during her brief period dispatching for Dallas PD. Her incredible sense of duty to the officers, firefighters, citizens, 
and coworkers she serves is apparent in her leadership skills and attention to detail and training. She has made it through two major heart conditions and a life-changing multiple sclerosis diagnosis, which has knocked her on her ass more than once. And each time she gets knocked down, she has managed to surmount each obstacle with grace and poise when others doubted she could. Each time her lovely wife, Jam, has been by her side with her precocious dog, Tex. Today, we welcome Jillian Etheridge. Welcome, Jillian and Jam. Thank you. Welcome. That was, that was, that was sweet. I don't know. I don't know what to say from that. I wrote that. (laughs) You did a great job. (laughs) So, Jillian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Are you excited? Are you nervous? I'm a little nervous. This really? Is, yeah. You look. You look. You were. Do I look nervous? You were nervous? all cocky last night. Like was I? Yeah. I was trying to be. I'm trying to look like George Strait. Well, we were. Yeah. For the for the listeners, we went and saw the the King George Strait last night and uh, out the Dickies Arena, and he was incredible. It was. Uh, it's my bucket list. So. What was your favorite song he sang? That he sang. Yeah. Run. Okay. Yeah. He, he he had a. Uh, no, that was Amarillo by Morning. Oh yeah. Well, he had a he had a he had a song that he put out for that tequila that it was basically an entire song for a a, a tequila that he's uh, apparently endorsing a whole song. Have you tried it? No, but I, I'm I'm interested just because he drinks it. Yes, of course. Cortico is that the name of it? Codigo. 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 Sorry, George. I was say you should apologize. I did. He doesn't. He, you think he listens to this? He might. <laughs> I'm gonna send it to him. You really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you're in town. Y'all came into town just to go to George Strait with us last last night, and then hang out with the family. And I roped you into this. You sent me your bio. Good lord, a year ago. It's about almost a year ago. Probably. And you tell the listener where you're living now. I live in Fairfax. Well, I I'm sorry, I don't live in Fairfax County, Virginia anymore. I live in uh, Bristow, Virginia, so about 25 miles outside of Washington D.C. With you and Jam. so when's the last time you were here? It's been three years. Let's see, so and I do not like doing Zoom calls uh, or Zoom me- podcasts because just the sound and then also the personal feel. And you don't get the when you're zooming with somebody, you you don't get the added bonus of seeing the video that I just showed you right before we started recording. Uh, you know, so can you describe to the listener the video that? Never, you know it, what? It Never was mind. scientific, well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it was educational. It was very wholesome. Um, family friendly. Very f- family friendly. I'll maybe put it out and um, I'll post it online on the the ATO uh, Facebook page. You could endorse it, I think. Yeah, yeah. You ready to dive into this? Uh, let's go. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> if I do the rest of it, the British accent is going <laughs> to... Is it going to throw you off? If you can maintain that, I think you should just switch between Australian, maybe. Yeah. All I can say is, good day, mate. That's it. That's my extent. All right. Talk about where you grew up. Uh, So we initially, until about seven, we lived in Greenville, Texas. And then when we were seven, we moved to Fairfax County, Virginia uh, for my dad's job and lived in a very... I guess wholesome neighborhood and got to go visit Washington DC on field trips and just be exposed to a lot of different culture and things that I would have never imagined here growing up in small town Texas. Especially Greenville. 
<clears throat> and you yeah, at Green Bowl, you moved in 95, right? Back yes. to Fairfax. So Greenville is just e- it's east of Dallas. It's about almost an hour east, and it is small towny. It's still kind of small towny. Um, very wholesome, like that video we just you were shown. I would equate those the same. Yeah, there's that was probably going on last night somewhere in Greenville. Um, <laughs> how much of a culture shock was it moving uh, from Greenville up to the D.C. area? I think it's pretty crazy. So I know that I don't know if melting pot's still the term, but it, there's just so much variety there. And we were not exposed to that growing up here. We grew up and I don't want to call my parents out, but we spent the majority of our time in a bar down here called the rail. And uh, <laughs> then we end up in Virginia and it's just so different. You're there's people you never thought you'd meet. And you're, I guess, led to believe you're around all these high-powered people because Fairfax County is a uh, pretty wealthy county in, in the nation, so it's different. It's real Stafford, I would say. Like, anytime we go out there or fly back out there, I'm always like, every lawn is perfectly manicured and all the houses look really perfect, and it's definitely a culture shock between Dallas and Fairfax County. It is. I think it's one of uh, the top five richest. It's somewhere at the top five richest counties in the nation. And you can definitely tell. Uh, I appreciate all the people there. It's just a very different world. You don't hold people don't hold doors open. People don't say ma'am and sir. And I think people you just don't have that friendly. Hey, on the sidewalk to just a random stranger. Yeah. And you just don't see as many different different cultures in Fairfax I think or different people in Fairfax as you kind of do in Dallas so it's definitely different when I moved down here and I feel like when you were when you're here you're like this is definitely not the same it's warmer here you're you're a twin Kristen and you've had a lot of physical ailments throughout your life that and and a lot of and some of very unique and on your bio, you mentioned the Wolf Parkinson White White Syndrome. Can you explain what that is? I've never heard of that. Uh, without getting super in depth, basically, since your heart works like uh, a circuit, my heart had uh, what they call an accessory pathway, so it's shortened the circuit, so it would beat faster, and my heart rate would routinely get over two hundred, sometimes up to two fifty, and naturally very uncomfortable. I was very fortunate that they found it. I had bronchitis or something and they took me because I had chest pain from coughing. They took me to the hospital, did an EKG and found it. And uh, it could have been very bad because mine was pretty severe. And how old were you when that happened? 14. You were pretty, you, you love sports. I do. And you're, you're, you love athletic you know, athletic events, and did you play sports? I was playing basketball at the time. I mean, I've played a variety of sports, but at the time, basketball was my passion. And how did that, what what happened when you got diagnosed with that as far as your, your athletic career? Uh, because I could not take medication to control it, uh, I was not able to play basketball. So they went in and did one of the surgeries, uh, which failed, and then went in and did a second surgery, and that failed also. Uh they thought it was good to go, 
but for about six weeks I was able to play again. And after that, they said that it had come back and had to have another surgery to essentially destroy that part of my heart and never would never be able to play at least on a high school team. And being that young, <clears throat> the, the feeling and disappointment of having that to take away one of your passions, <clears throat> how did, how did you deal with that? I wish I had, I wish I remembered. It was uh it was a blow. I think it, it was pretty devastating because that was a lot of all my friends played and I was very fortunate to play with some really awesome basketball players throughout the time. But uh, I think I just didn't really have a choice but to find something new and probably get into trouble around the house more, I guess. The Well, you, you've had to endure a lot, especially physically, and the listener is going to hear a lot more. So I could see why that one is so far in the distant memory because you've had a lot of other shit go on that you've had to overcome and here you are you're still going in high school you you had kind of you had a passion for the first responder world can you tell us about that uh fairfax county we're super fortunate they have a lot of vocational programs where you can get sent off to uh, another school for a period and i started doing EMT because I one wanted to get out of school for a period and I started it probably my sophomore or junior probably my junior year and I fell in love with it it was the most amazing class ever uh the plan was that you're able to get your EMT basic before you graduate and we were the first class that Fairfax County had hosted with it I credit my amazing instructor she has shaped my life forever but it opened a lot of doors for me and my dream was to be in the fire department. However, with my heart condition, that wasn't going to happen. So it at least started my, uh, I guess, career path and my desire to be involved in something. So did you know early on that with the heart, just with the heart condition alone, that you were, you were, did that just kind of pull you out of being a firefighter? Yeah, I uh, was not going to be able to pass any sort of physical because it was just so inconsistent at the time with my heart. And that's before the, I mean, your heart is still evolving and growing at that young age. And it, honest, what, what made you gravitate to the first responder world? What did you like most about it? I mean, I guess it's going to sound cliche, but I, I think it more for me seemed, it was such a family environment. Everybody was just a team and I really enjoyed that the most. I, I could probably say, yeah, I wanted to help people like, and I did, but I think it was just more the family atmosphere that drew me in. When you were a part of that program, did you do ride-alongs? Uh, so not for that. We did one for that specific program, but they started an explorer program for the fire department. We had one for the police at the time, but we were the first fire explorers. So part of that, we got to do a lot of ride-alongs. Did the, the, the firefighters welcome you? They did. I was very fortunate that I one of our advisors was at the station closest to our my parents' house at the time. And so I was very fortunate that I got brought into that station and it became an amazing family. We can't ever get the firefighters to talk about the station. <laughs> Is she going to break the code? I wish I could. Oh. <laughs> there, there was a lot. There was a lot that went down there. Was there a pole? There was not a pole. No. There was not a pole. <laughs> huh. Okay. <laughs> There's no dancing at the fire station. 
No dancing. There was a lot of a lot of things I'm sure that the county probably would wonder what they were doing at the time, but uh no dancing. Well you're keeping it secret. I'm gonna have to because <laughs> a lot of them still work there. So well you did ride alongs. Can you talk about what it was like riding along with the firefighters and what all you did? Uh, so I was very fortunate. I got to ride on the medic all the time. Uh, and it was definitely, I believe I was maybe 18 at the time. And I don't know that I was mentally prepared for what I was going to encounter at that age. Uh, I'm very fortunate that I think it helped me to kind of grow a lot and see what the world was like and have that experience being that young prior to getting into, especially what I ended up in. Uh, you know, I have a couple calls that I'll always remember, and I think that impacts me more seeing it than hearing it. What call do you think stuck with you the most? Uh, my first CPR ever, uh, and this I guess will be relevant later, but was a elderly man. He had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and he shot himself with a twenty-two, and. So we got on scene and obviously they attempted CPR for about a minute, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything they were able to do. And I think it sticks with me the most because the gun was kept upstairs and he was not able to get upstairs. So I think it kind of hit home a little bit, uh, especially being the first one and being a little bit more gruesome because with the 22, obviously there was going to be some damage inside the, inside the brain before it exited and I'm my amazing uh, mentor at the time, I guess after every CPR, everybody goes out for ice cream. So we went to Silver Diner and uh, got a milkshake. You, um, we talk about mental health here a lot. And how did you cope with, was that, you know, it was obviously stuck with you, but was it difficult for you to move past that being so young and that being really the first really horrific thing that you've seen or... I think what scares me the most is I was able to compartmentalize that really easily. Uh, it sticks with me, but it wasn't something that I really broke down from. I think it was just, I viewed it as it's kind of what you're expecting when you're trying to do that line of work. So it bothers you more that it doesn't bother you that much. Absolutely. I, I talked about my therapist about that a couple times. So... <clears throat> What are some other incidents that that uh, you dealt with when you were out in the field that that you remember that kind of, again, something else you had to compartmentalize and you've kind of learned from? Because, I mean, I would imagine being that young, you're learning with every single call and every experience to make your mind more bulletproof to that type of uh, trauma. I think the other first one that sticks out is we have an Interstate 66 uh, in our jurisdiction and we got a call for a car fire and we got out there and I was young and naive. I didn't know what uh, burning flesh smelled like, but I, I'll never forget that smell now. However, we got there and it was a couple who had been hit by a 18 wheeler and they were in a little sedan and they never made it out of the car. And the guy, if I remember correctly, was leaning over, like trying to get the door open for his, uh, I don't know if it was girlfriend, partner, or who it was, but there was a female in the car. I think the smell probably lingers more, but 
it's it was an interesting i guess kind of memory for a young 18 year old did those firefighters did they put you to work did they give you tasks I was super fortunate. They did. They gave me uh, a lot of opportunities to really get hands-on with patients within my purview as a basic, and I got to learn a lot from them to really get me prepared, because at the time, I still was trying to go for my medic after I graduated, and they gave me a lot of opportunities to learn from them. That kind of trauma uh, early on being, what, you were 18, 19, uh, that most people at that age they don't see that kind of trauma unless they're experiencing it they're in the middle of it and they're experiencing themselves or they're like a soldier there's somebody in the military that that, uh that goes and uh, goes into battle uh even officers we we have to be 21 misty to uh to to get into that by the time you graduate yeah by the time you graduate to become a police officer here in uh texas and that experience at that young uh that young of an age in mind it's valuable, but it also can have a negative effect. Do you think that starting that young, because we've had the, the, the great, you know, uh, Lindsay from uh, DFR that came on, spent 40 years. He started as a 18 year old in Dallas in the eighties. Um, you know, and that's a lot of trauma early on and some people just don't deal with it. Right. And, um, David Lindsay, he, I believe he, he was able to deal with it, but he recognizes now looking back that there was a lot of bad habits and and bad coping mechanisms that he saw around his uh, fellow firefighters early on. Did you, could you see from the older firefighters over there? Did you see their coping mechanisms? Did you take anything from that? I think a lot of what I experienced was dark humor and, you know, you've got to laugh if you're not going to cry. And I think that was the main thing. And probably why people got up to some antics at the fire station just to release that that stress. I, looking back, can't say that my coping mechanism, I didn't have the tools that I needed at the time. But I don't know that anybody really ever has those tools until you get older and realize, oh, something's wrong. I'm I'm not handling this the way I should be. So I think that Looking back, it's easier to have that Monday morning quarterback moment. You, you mentioned your instructor, but in the firehouse, did you have any role models? I did. I uh, I had a couple, and one retired not super long after I got into dispatch, but they were just some of the smartest people and willing to do the right thing, even if it uh, skirted lines. And I I respect that because it always came down to the patients being first. And I think that says a lot in this day and age. Were you the only girl? I was not. I was not. There were uh, there were a couple. And I think that made it a little bit easier because they kind of felt like you had somebody that could relate to you and that you could have these conversations with because I don't want to say that I it was a you can't show emotion kind of place because it definitely wasn't. But I think there's always that fear of showing emotion and somebody judging you for it. Sure. Can you talk about how how did you get into communications? Oh, man. Uh, After my dreams of being in the fire department were dashed, I, at the time, was dating a uh, 
a gentleman that I met at the fire station. And he suggested I go to communications because part of the Explorer program, I had to do a sit along up there and I was only supposed to be there for four hours and I got there and I, I loved it. It was just so much fun. So he suggested, Hey, why don't you get into communications? They're hiring. And I thought it would just be a stepping stone, but it was something new every day. It was a way to still have that family feel without being actually in the field. I think dispatchers and communication get forgotten and there's such a vital role because being in the field, we hear their voice, your voice. We establish a relationship, but we don't get to hear your perspective and the things that officers fail to do in the field to involve you. Because when we go through critical incidents, you do too. And we have an outlet and you don't. So tell it, we want, we want your perspective. I am very fortunate in Fairfax County that we have been included in some of the debriefings that they do, especially with the uh, bigger calls. I know I had been dispatching on a call where they had had somebody barricaded and he ended up shooting out of the window at officers and they actually asked if I wanted to drive out to where they were debriefing at that night. And I think that was a really cool experience to be able to see that. And not too long ago, we had a shooting and a barricade that I assisted with. And they actually had the police department's incidents, incident services, their peer support team came up and they did, well, I guess it was pandemic. We did a Zoom call and they made sure that we're all okay. I don't know that it's always been that way, but it's certainly trending in that direction. And people forget about the dispatchers a lot. I think you could probably equate, especially the call takers to you're reading a book and you get really into it and then you have no idea how it ends. You don't have that last chapter. So it's there's times where for a lot of people that causes anxiety that you don't know how things turn out. And that's probably the hardest part hearing the things that sucks at times, but not knowing what happens at the end is the worst. Have you ever had an officer visit you? I have. Uh, I, we, as opposed to Dallas, so Dallas, everybody, the senior dispatchers have their assigned channels, but for us in Fairfax, we sign up for our positions and I ended up, falling in love with these two stations and I dispatch there all the time and making that rapport and that relationship, people came up to visit if they were doing a mail run or people came up and, you know, brought food every once in a while or drinks, especially if we had had a really crappy day. And it was cool to have that connection because you got to know them and you get to hear if their voice sounds off, maybe something's wrong. You can just pick up on these little things. And I think that helped that helped shape me as a dispatcher. What was the most surprising aspect of it when you first put that headset on and you started listening? And how, what was the first thing that jumped out that, like, damn, this is tough to multi, you have to multitask, I would imagine, like I couldn't do? You do have to multitask. I, not to sound like a cocky ass, sorry for cursing, but I didn't find the multi. Explicit. <laughs> I'd, I'd go with confidence. I don't think that I really had an issue with the multitasking aspect. I think it was harder for me that I want to help, but I can't do that in that moment. I'm getting help to them, 
but the the typing and the looking at when we have to go through emergency medical dispatch, looking at different screens and cards, trying to get the right questions and get the right help started, that that wasn't hard for me. I think it's more you want to help in that moment and you can't. I was talking to Jam last night on the way back in that traffic from uh, George Drake about what the not getting any closure or finality of uh, of an incident, especially when there's officers involved when you hear officers that you may know and you dispatch for every night and you hear them screaming. Um, how, and then you it ends, suspect in custody or, or you get an ambulance called and sometimes you don't even know who the ambulance is for. How does that make you feel? How does that affect you? Because you, just like officers, the ball keeps bouncing. You have to go move on right to the next incident and you may not know. Not having closure, what do you think about that? I think you can definitely see the adrenaline dump after those moments. You can you can feel it where you're just exhausted afterwards, but you don't really have a, a moment to stop because especially if you're on if you're taking calls, that's your only job at that moment and you don't necessarily have all day to sit there and process that. You've got to jump right back into it. And so I think you don't see that impact until the end of your shift and you're going home. And I know there's been many times that I've come home at the end of the day and I just have nothing left. I don't, no offense to my lovely wife, but I don't have a moment. Uh, I just don't want to talk to anybody else. And I think that's probably my coping mechanism is just shutting down and listening to a podcast or music. And because it does, it does impact you. You don't, you worry about the officers, you care about them, and you have some really close friendships with them. And if you don't know at the end of the day that they're absolutely okay in that moment, that's really hard. I've I've had to listen to officers that I care about deeply calling for help in a very panicked voice. And that moment, you don't have a choice but to address it. However, afterwards, it's kind of like that could have been really, that could have been really bad. And it hits you. Do you feel like your field experience, although it was brief, was a foundation? Do you think it helped you with your dispatch job? I think it absolutely did. I think it set me up, one, to not be as impacted by some of the things that we hear every day. I think it helped me with compartmentalization. And I think that, especially going into communication so young, uh, I didn't have any issue with some of the things you can see with newer employees who have not had those experiences in the real world with jobs. I think it helped instill a work ethic that I needed and that I wanted to have. And then you've went on to pass it on, correct? Don't you train? Don't you teach? I, went, I was so fortunate. I went to the training division because training is, was a passion of mine. Uh, and I've been able to instruct with some really great really great people and being able to kind of mentor a new generation has it's very fulfilling but it also you feel like I can help them do it the way that at least in my perspective is the right way and you want to I want to have that hand in it because I don't want to be one of those people that sits around and complains about man people are just they're not getting trained the right way but not be a part of it I can't sit around and complain if I don't want to be a part of it so if you say training's a passion, I want to know specifically what piece you are you the most passionate about and how do you install it? 
I would say police dispatch. It was the first way that I started training was training uh, people on police dispatch and I fell in love with it. I know I did not have the tools to be a trainer when I first started because I just got thrown into it. But I've been so fortunate that I have some amazing people who I've been able to help mentor. And one day I was sitting around feeling sorry for myself because of just my diagnosis. And I decided to throw myself into creating a class because we were struggling. We didn't have police dispatchers, enough of them. And I wanted to help accelerate that process. So I threw myself into revamping and creating a, uh, we call it accelerated police dispatch program and put them through a week long class with the hopes that it would shorten training time. And I was very ecstatic that we got it certified to be able to for DCJS, for us, uh, it, for Virginia DCJS, I got approved for a class. So we're, not that it is taught statewide, but it could be. Mm, that's amazing. I've seen you really with your training and how detailed and very strict you are with your training. And I know that when you were training on specifically just police dispatch to begin with, you had a waiting list for people that wanted to train with you. Um, can you kind of talk about what it is that makes you a that you feel like makes you a good trainer and what things you are requiring of your trainees that maybe other people may overlook? I wish I knew why people wanted to train with me. I I think a lot of what I at least tried to instill in people was I called it OCD, but officer safety was paramount. That was the number one thing. And if that did not happen, I, we were not going to have a good day, me and the trainee. Uh, and so I don't know if people just wanted to continue carrying that mentality. That's how I was trained. I was trained by somebody who is now an officer. And I knew that no matter what I needed to make sure I know Dallas doesn't do uh, status checks on officers, but we have to check on officers at a certain time interval. And those things had to get done and just being very regimented. I think sometimes that helps people. I know it's not everybody's style, but I, I think that was the main way I was trying to train was however we get to the end result, I don't care, but we need to make sure that those officers make it home or that we're doing our best by them. Well, officers listening to this know what officer safety is in the field, but I don't think we have any idea what that means for a dispatcher. I think that, to me, uh, obviously, first and foremost, we want to make sure that if you're not responding to the radio, we need to know why. Uh, okay. And so we have a couple tools if they're not answering on the radio. I know that Dallas, there's tones that you guys use uh, when dispatching certain priority calls. Uh, we will tone officers out if they're not responding because our first thing is if they're not responding to the radio, hopefully there's a good reason why. Uh in Fairfax, we check on officers, on anybody who's on a call, we check on them to make sure that they're okay. It just gives us another lo level of protection. And then when we're talking about dispatching priority calls, making sure you know where they're at at any moment is paramount because especially if you have officers out on, they've set up a perimeter to search for somebody. I need to make sure that I know where they're at because if they start yelling for help, 
I might I might not be able to rely on the computer at all times, especially technology today makes it difficult. So I think it's just more of an awareness and recognizing that you at that computer see the big picture because the officers are looking at their perspective of something. But I think it's easier for us. We have a more global view. And I think that's the most important thing to me for officer safety. Can I just say, it's also like from her, from a dispatching perspective, it's little details. Like she was saying, we need to know where officers are at all times. What that means for a dispatcher sometimes looks like verifying a location. So if you guys mark out on a traffic stop in the CAD or call it out on the radio and you're not sure where you are, or you kind of just give like a, a common place where everybody in the street knows where that is, but that doesn't mean it's a location in our CAD system. So like we need to verify that exact location and to get it to come up in the CAD. So if you guys do call for help, we can add units right away or get, you know, fire department going because if you put it in kind of certain ways and it doesn't verify, it's like extra steps for us to get you the help you need if you need it. You mean if I tell you I'm at Bruton Bottoms, you can't find me? Yep. Yep. <laughs> she well, seems I, yeah. annoyed. I think officers sometimes think, oh, she's being rude or she's trying right. to control me. We're totally not. We are not <laughs> like, can you give me your exact like 100 block or intersection? We're not trying to be jerks about it like it's just a lot of times the cad doesn't yeah like i don't care what you guys do do your thing but the cad sometimes doesn't it just doesn't recognize it i have a question for both y'all the annoying clicking of the radio (laughs) you should see their faces yeah i know she's dry heaving over here (laughs) jillian I'll start with, uh, in Fairfax, that's not really a thing in the way that it is when I dispatched here in Dallas. Uh, I was, I think, explaining to Kristen the other day that when we're dispatching, our radio traffic will go across no matter what. We can still hear officers speaking, or if somebody keys up and clicks that mic, we can hear it, but our traffic's still going out. Whereas here in Dallas, that clicking, uh, I always found to be used in a uh, not... I'm trying to key up to give something helpful way. I mean, there was some times where I think the clicking was trying to help somebody else out. But I think overall, that is probably one of the most annoying things. It's in the top five. Agreed. Um, It was a very, so that was something I had never experienced either until I came to Dallas. And I was like, what is this clicking? (laughs) What is happening? Um, So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like she said, sometimes I think it's for the benefit of the officers, like, hey, you're saying something you shouldn't be saying, we're just going to click over it. Um, but it, you know, tends to be like a thing for us because you couldn't get out over there. For the for the listener, the, uh, the, some of the other uh, police agencies across the country that listen, and as well as the non-first responder community that listens, clicking of the radio in Dallas is quite often used as displeasure with either the dispatcher or somebody that gets on the radio, whether it's a supervisor calling off a chase or the dispatcher and one one of the officers butting heads, which it does happen a lot. And you could start hearing clicking of a radio and and Misty, that's it's really common and it really it could be really dangerous because in Dallas when you're doing the clicking it's very juvenile, and I get the frustrations in some because I've been frustrated with the dispatcher as well. But I did not 
I don't, I've never even being a young officer, I did not uh, partake in that clicking because it's, it is kind of stupid. It's a snarky gesture. It is. And like it happens here in Dallas because our chase policy is, is so strict. You hear it a lot uh, now that supervisor calling off the chase and then you hear just, and it's, you know, and there could be somebody calling for help uh, in that time of jackassery. <laughs> I think part of it is, too, in Dallas, there's not a push-to-talk ID. So whoever is clicking that mic, there's no identifier in Dallas. So I don't know who's clicking that mic. I don't know if it's somebody clicking solely, truly trying to get out or if it's somebody just voicing, well, I guess metaphorically voicing their displeasure. I, uh, I think the biggest problem, there are times where when you are genuinely in trouble and you're trying to get over the radio that you need assistance like code three which is lights and sirens um you very rarely have a chance to like get on the radio and say hey this is you know yankee 219 i need cover code three it may just be this really short burst of transmission and if there's clicking going on it's really easy to miss um and if you're not familiar with the radio um that may not be as apparent but it is really easy to miss somebody calling for cover when they really need it that's one of my greatest fears so you obviously came in dispatch for Dallas at some point. Can you kind of talk about, before we get into Dallas, can you kind of talk about the differences in dispatching and call taking in the different kind of agencies? Obviously, Fairfax County and Dallas are different. I know that JAM has worked for Capel and Fairfax City. So can you guys kind of go into that just a little bit? I think there was a lot of uh, shock when I got to Dallas because I know I had spoken to you before coming down and I was just amazed that status checks weren't a thing. Uh, Just routinely, you know, 10 minutes or 30 minutes on calls. And that, that seemed so crazy to me. And I remember voicing that when I first got here. And my trainer at the time said, you'll see, you won't have time. Because Dallas was so busy. And... Uh, I guess the best way of describing that difference was obviously there's procedural differences, but we have a queue for our pending calls that need to be dispatched. And in Fairfax, we don't have the same call volume that Dallas does. And so if there was a call in my pending queue, I was stressed because I didn't like seeing that. And I wanted to get that out right away. And then I got to Dallas and I saw calls holding for a little while and I remember seeing 30, 40 calls at a time holding. And I don't, I think there was a day I didn't get my call. I didn't get my queue clear until 3am. And that was, it's just such a crazy difference. Probably the call volume. And I think procedural, there's a lot of procedural differences and obviously learning the terminology, but that was probably the biggest thing for me was the call volume. So similarly, yeah, um, I worked for two much smaller agencies than Dallas and um, Fairfax County. Um, They were like 60 officers tops. The jurisdictional boundaries were like 12 square miles. You had, you know, four or five officers on shift at a time. Um, So super small. And I came to Dallas thinking like, okay, I can do this. In fact, I remember the major in my interview, one of the last questions she asked me was, do you think you're prepared to dispatch, you know, for 60, 70, 80 officers at a time? And I was like, yeah, no big deal. Definitely a big deal. Um, I think mainly just 
because like like Jillian said, the call volume and also the priority. So it's not like you're taking, you know, like 50 parking complaints are holding. Like these are all party one calls that are needing to get out or party two calls and it's a big deal. Can you explain to the listener with the priority system? It just because uh, there's a lot of people that don't understand priority ones, twos and threes. Yeah. Do you want to go ahead? I'll let you, I'll let you take that. Uh, so priority one is obviously a very high priority calls. Uh, and Fairfax, we go from zero, actually zero down to eight. And the higher the priority, obviously, the sooner you want to get it out. And they're color coded uh, also to kind of help that stand out a little bit. So if you're holding priority ones or twos, which I have done here while dispatching, that's that's stressful because you know that somebody needs help. We just, at the time, there were no officers to send. And you had, you were, if you had a sergeant or a lieutenant in service, you were sending them because we had to get those calls out. And so can you give an example of what a priority one would look like for somebody who doesn't know what that is? Like give a a call or event type. I'll start. I'll speak to Fairfax at the moment. Um, A priority one for us would be a robbery that had just occurred or in progress or a burglary of an occupied dwelling, a stabbing, a shooting, something along those lines. Those are priority ones. And in Fairfax, those do not hold. I can't say the same has always been true. Other places I've worked. Yeah, in priority twos and threes, we we have, I mean, it goes all the way down to like theft and alarm calls or, or the lower uh, levels for priority. But every city is run, every, everything's run on numbers, whether you're working in a major city or you're working in a hospital or everything. There's always something that people use to quantify uh, success or failure for any organization. Response times and the differences between, I would imagine, Fairfax versus Dallas all the way up to our top chief and even the city leaders, the response times always come up whenever you mention having a priority one, which is a it's it's a pretty serious uh, call that comes in a shooting or stabbing or assist officer. Those those are toned out and you go. But how much pressure from you're you're a supervisor now, but you have somebody over you. Right. I mean, as far as and you being a supervisor. Is response time something you have to stay on top of? I think it. there's always going to be ebbs and flows as different things happen in your jurisdiction. There's obviously sometimes different focuses on which calls need. You have priority calls that need to get out, but if something happens, then there's a heightened focus on a particular call type. We are in Fairfax are very fortunate that we don't we don't have priority calls that hold like that. Our response times for police for true priority calls are not very long. And I know if I were to see a call holding in my supervisory position, that is a priority call that needs to get somebody out there. We will pull from other stations. It's a little bit easier in Fairfax to do that, to have officers from other stations go to priority calls. Not as simple as it would be in Dallas unless it was an assist. When you were in Dallas, how was it? There was a significant amount of pressure on getting calls out. I remember standing or sitting one day and I had a couple calls left on my board and I think I had a lieutenant in service 
But there was a panhandler call holding, and I was asked why that call was still holding. And it was just a crazy, I think, thing to see because I know there's an imp- it's important to get calls out, but there is a priority system for a reason. And you, you've got to make sure there are sometimes officers available in other parts of that station to be able to respond to a priority call when it comes out. Because if people are tied up on panhandlers or some of the lower priority calls that don't have an imminent threat to life or property, how do you justify that at the end of the day? Well, in Dallas, what I know, because you have all the, every division, we have seven divisions here in Dallas, uh, one through seven. And the the ground that you have to cover to get from one side of the division to the other, it's pretty pretty extensive, especially in Southeast and South Central, because it's just the, you got traffic factored in, and back before South Central opened, Misty, remember, remember yeah. how Southeast was enormous? We drove 100 to 150 miles a night on wow. our vehicles. Do you guys work eight-hour shifts, 10-hour shifts? Uh, our normal shifts are t- technically 12 and a half hours. So we do a roll call at either 6.30 a.m. or 6.30 p.m., and then we go from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Our officers just got moved to that as well. I didn't realize they work 12-hour shifts. How do you sit with that in your ear for 12 hours? Where I cannot complain at all about where I work because I have seen, obviously, other agencies. We get hour breaks, typically, uh, staffing dependent, obviously. And if we are able to, we can get up for 15 minutes here and there, and it gives you that opportunity to kind of decompress and we don't sit in the same position all day long. Uh, We can if that's available, but we can also move around. So the way Fairfax works, we, you're either call taking, you're police dispatching, you're fire dispatching, or you're doing our teletype, which handles our warrants and all of the administrative stuff. And so having the opportunity to kind of switch around, I think provides a little bit of a relief. When you guys were in Dallas, is, were those same opportunities there? And did you work 12-hour shifts? We worked eight-hour shifts in Dallas. Um, However, there was very rarely an opportunity to get up and take a break. There were days where we did not have relief, and you could not even get up to go to the bathroom if you had to. And that, it was just mind-boggling to me because I can't imagine having to hold it for eight hours. Like, hashtag no channel. Love it. Love it. (laughs) What does that mean? Basically that there was no relief. So once you plugged in, you plugged in. There wasn't anybody to come relieve you. And since in Dallas, dispatches under the police department, um, you know, our bosses were you folks, officers. They didn't they weren't able to take a channel for you. They didn't know how to dispatch. So unless there was some kind of crazy emergency, somebody could maybe another dispatcher could maybe take your channel for you for two minutes to let you go to the bathroom, but Usually not, because as you know, the there's way too many officers to be responsible for, for somebody to pull your channel for you. So you had to sit. I mean, that wasn't like, couldn't go to the bathroom, couldn't get up to get lunch. You were just at the console. I think, the I would say the majority of our officers have no idea what you guys go through. I think it's important for people to have that perspective, because especially in Dallas, when you are just on especially third watch, you're getting hammered, just call after call after call and get 
getting pressure to get those calls out and you're getting some feedback from the officers who are not necessarily always happy with some of the calls they're dispatched to or where they're dispatched to, but they're not getting those breaks. They're not able to get up and have a moment to decompress sometimes. And that is, it's a tragedy because the toll that that takes mentally and physically is absolutely overwhelming for people. And it's not good for the mental health aspect of them. Feedback's a really nice way to put that, by the way. Thank you. I was trying to say that nicely. Um, you also, when you were in Dallas, I know that they're very short staffed. Um, and I think that you guys are kind of going through the same thing right now in Fairfax. Um, but I think it had a different impact in Dallas. Can you talk about how that was? Well, while I was still in training, I, uh, I had finished my first phase of training and I did that on deep nights. And I want to say it was my first or second day on third watch in the second phase of training. And I walked in and I didn't have a trainer assigned to me at the time. And I remember a major looking at me and asking me if I had dispatched for a big department before. And I said, yes. And I was either given the, we're going to be no channel if you need a trainer or you can handle it. And I've got two senior dispatchers on either side of you. And so I got to sit on South Central all by myself in my uh, second phase of training. Wow. And for the listeners, South Central is a very busy channel. That's not an easy channel to dispatch. I uh, I think I was very humbled that day. Tell us why. I was confident before in my uh, multitasking abilities, and I don't think that I was struggling with that. However, I vividly remember we had probably two robberies that were holding in the same apartment complex. And so I announced it. Hey, I need people to go. And I as we needed to, kept announcing it, but we had nobody to go. And it ended up uh, turning into, I believe, a stabbing because one of the people in the complex was like, I'm just going to take matters into my own hand. And it held for probably 20 or 30 minutes. And the pressure of that, because I start thinking I'm doing something wrong, or I had talked about the push to talk earlier. I had an officer had keyed up and I couldn't make out what they were saying. So because there's no push to talk in Dallas, so you can't, it doesn't identify who's trying to key up. I had to do an entire roll call to make sure that every officer on that screen's okay. And I think that was really overwhelming for somebody new to a system. And I might have lived here for a little while, but I didn't grow up here in my formative years. So I didn't know the geography as well. And trying to learn all of this at once without somebody to guide you in those busy moments, you start to question yourself all the time. Am I doing the right thing? Am I going to get somebody hurt? And that's, that was a, I needed a drink after that day. That's for sure. Can you explain roll call for the listeners? I had to go through every single unit on my screen, everybody and call them and have them acknowledge to say that they were okay. And that took quite a while because there are a lot of officers on one channel in Dallas that day at South Central, you said it humbled you. When you went home after that and got a cocktail, what, what was going through your head? I think we went to, I want to say the double wide. And uh, <laughs> we sat outside and might have been the Katie Trail Ice House. I don't know. Great bars either way. But we went and had a drink. And I remember thinking I was proud of myself that I didn't cry or walk away at that point. But I think it really gave a wide range of emotions of... Dallas is a very different place to dispatch for and from very different aspects that 
in Fairfax, you can still get up no matter what. You might not get an hour break, but you can still get up no matter what. And so that aspect that there is that that mental health concern and that physical well-being concern, that humbled me a lot that it was not going to be that way here, whether that was the fault of people just not wanting to come to work or whatever led to that. And I think also, I thought that I would be able to handle the stress of dispatching 100, 120 officers at a day. But when you're holding calls, it feels personal almost sometimes. It feels like I'm not doing enough to get calls cleared. You said feels personal. I don't know if you guys are going to segue into this or not. Um, Can you talk about personally dispatching for your sister and how that affected you? Well, uh, I used to think when I was a young, naive person before I dispatched for my sister that it wasn't going to be that bad. And I cannot begin to explain the stress that I would feel um, hearing hearing Kristen, you know, my sister or her partner asking for help or yelling on the radio or getting on the ground. So chasing a suspect uh, in a foot pursuit, that's stress because... I, I can hear what's going on, but I can't see. I can't help. It would be a lot easier to hear about it after the fact instead of being there and feeling partially responsible that if something goes wrong, that's on me. If I don't get help soon enough or if I can't find her, because I've got to imagine when you're running down the road in the nighttime, you can't see a lot around you. So I think that pressure of I need to know where people are at all the time from just a little computer screen map. It's not like I got GPS that's following you on Google Maps or something. I'm looking at a screen and that's a lot of pressure. I remember hearing my sister on the radio uh, yelling. They uh, had an assist and they were struggling with somebody who had a uh, glass bottle underneath and you hear the radio key up and you just hear stop resisting. And that was a lot of, there was an adrenaline dump after that, because if something happened, I don't, I don't know how I'd be able to recover from that. The irony with this is you were, you barely dispatched for me when you were in Dallas, because you didn't like it. And we had a primary dispatcher on Channel 3, who's an excellent dispatcher. Um, but you were my favorite dispatcher that I'd ever had, not because you were my sister, but because I really think that you're the best dispatcher I've ever had. And that was the best example for me. That was the first time I've seen how a really excellent dispatcher can really shape a situation or really shape a hot call that's going on, whether it's a shooting or a perimeter or whatever needs to go on, because you're calm and you're getting the information that we need. You're not getting a bunch of BS that we don't need out on the radio. You're not just talking to talk and you're controlling the channel like you need to because we'll still have people that have been on patrol for a while or new on patrol. We have a hot call and people are getting on the radio like add me, add me, add me, you know, all this unnecessary stuff because, you know, we already know you're going to the hot call. Just go and, you know, you'll get added. So you are excellent at controlling the radio and getting the information that we need and you're on top of calling air one if we need air one you're on top of calling a canine if we need canine you're on top of organizing a perimeter because 
there are some officers that still can't organize perimeter and I haven't done it in four years, so I'm not judging anybody, but so you were my favorite dispatcher to dispatch for me. And I was very disappointed that you never wanted to dispatch for me. And then when you left Alice, I don't remember you being as enthusiastic about me as a dispatcher <laughs> when I sent you to a stabbing 10 minutes before the end of your shift. I didn't want to go to that call because <laughs> I got a lot of choice words after that from you and your partner. Did you get any clicks? I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. I think they knew better. Yeah, I would never make um, whenever you heard her calling for cover and you knew, how quickly did you realize that it was actually her and her partner? I obviously can recognize her voice very mm-hmm. easily. Um, I, so that was easy for me. Uh, I think the hardest part is when you just hear a small little portion of something and you're, you're second guessing that constantly is, is that what I heard? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a twin thing, but very attuned to... If she's going to sound different on the radio, I'm going to hear that stress in her voice more so than any other officer that I would ever dispatch for because I I care about everybody, but that's that's my twin. Yeah. You have to step into action. You have a job to do. The job to do is verify that that's them calling for cover and then find their location all in a matter of half seconds. It feels like an eternity, I think, in those moments. I think... I, you know, one of the calls that Kristen's talking about, I remember very vividly and I remember talking to her afterwards and her, you know, we're replaying it and debriefing and I'm just going over all what I thought I could have done better. And it felt like it was taking forever for me to do things. But I think on playback, you hear it. It, it doesn't take that long, but you're just hyper-focused. You're, you said you re- remember it vividly. Tell the listener a little bit more about it. Explain it. Like, walk them through it. Paint a picture if you can. I was minding my own business, trying not to dispatch for my sister. And uh, we had dispatched. I don't even remember what the call was for. I, I just remember them marking on scene with somebody. And then I just remember the radio opening and you hear yelling and you hear Kristen's partner yelling, but knowing that Kristen's there and then you've got a foot chase and I'm here trying to look and see where are we at on the map. And I don't know any of these apartment complexes people are yelling out. I'm trying to look on a map at that moment and figure that out and pass this information along. But the entire time, I'm just wondering, where is Kristen? Because it's it's a different level of intensity because you have, I don't know how I'd go home and explain to my parents, oh, I screwed up and didn't know where this location was. If something happened to Kristen, I, that's on me. And I don't know how to explain that to people. And ultimately, was she going to get hurt? No, she had a great partner who was going to take care of her. And she's obviously very capable, but... I think you just internalize all of this pressure that that's, that's your responsibility. It's a, it's a big responsibility. What do you do with that? When you, when you get off that shift where you haven't had time to use the restroom, you haven't even had a mental break, and you head home, what do you do with all that? So we had a fun uh, little ritual that we would use to debrief. Uh, Kristen, Jam, and I would sit on a bed and just talk. (laughs) That was like every night. I don't know why that even started, but 
having somebody that you can talk to who understands what you're going through to a, a degree with Kristen or with Jam, obviously understanding so much more of my side of things, having that outlet to be able to talk to, because I didn't want to drink. I didn't want to just come home and drink every day to get through my stress. Not saying that I haven't at some point in my life used that as a coping mechanism. And that was obviously not the way to go. But having people to talk to helps so much. And I wish I had had the fortitude to get into therapy sooner to develop those healthy coping mechanisms, because I'm pretty sure joking on a bed about terrible stuff that you're seeing or hearing all day is probably not the only way to cope, but I think that was all we had the tools for at the moment. I was going to say, I think that too, like those bed chats gave us perspective, right? So that closure that we sometimes don't get, like we could get from her and say, Hey, okay, what, like what happened with this call? Or this is what we were thinking on our side of the radio. How is it for y'all in the street? And it gave us, or at least for me, I felt like, you know, because I did a ride along during training, but just having the extra knowledge of what it's was like for you all on the street made it a little bit easier for me. And then I think maybe vice versa for her, like, well, these are the steps we have to go through when you guys call a 15 or like, this is what it looks like on our end, you know, whenever whatever's going on, right? So just knowing what the other person is having to do, I think helps like put you in the right frame of mind when it's like going on. Maybe we need more bedside chats with officers chats. and dispatchers <laughs> to get through. That could probably go things. way south. Maybe we won't call it bedside <laughs> chats between officers and dispatchers. I think you, there's been some. There yeah, might there, be, yeah. So there's some pillow talk. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned signal 15 for the listener. That's an assist officer here in Dallas. Uh, whenever y'all get a signal 15. So whenever you hear, uh, usually officers don't get on the radio and say signal 15, signal 15. It's just that you hear an element and you hear some screaming. And in that case with, with Kristen and her partner it was a stop resistance. And you, you recognize their voice. There's several people that you would not recognize their voice. And you have to figure out who that, what element it actually is, who's calling for cover. And you may not, you may just hear half of a sentence whenever. And you, you can tell by people's voices whenever, shit's gotten bad and real what goes through your mind at that moment on a signal 15 you know it's a signal 15 what goes through your mind when this when that type of call comes up i think the first thing is hopefully we know who it is uh and i cannot really emphasize enough how helpful push to talk ids are and it's not meant to be big brother but knowing who's keying up in that moment is incredibly valuable because I may not be able to have GPS on their physical person. I can at least narrow down where they are for their cruiser and then work my way from there. So I think the first part is who is it? And then I know it may be the most annoying question that officers get asked, but we need to know the situation in that moment that's going on. I think it's a little bit different for where I dispatch for now. There's a very clearly defined procedure when we have, we call them signal ones. And there's a very clearly defined procedure for how we handle that. But you're toning it out. You're getting officers started. You've got to locate them. But what is going on and what is the situation? Because that will drastically change how people respond to it and how people get there. And just trying to maintain a global view and to not let 
their panic become your panic. I sound very monotone on the radio and I do that for a reason. So when I am amped up, I'm not like high pitched and screaming. I'm just sounding a little bit more enthusiastic, I guess. Yeah, you do have a very sexy like in those one nine hundred one nine hundred those sex talks. I've been working yeah. on it. Oh, like, you mastered it. <laughs> very M- nice. M- Misty has a just looking at me in disgust right now. Yeah, well, she yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get in when you get to Dallas, and when you met your beautiful wife, Jam. Let's get into that. Well, uh, our first day at orientation for all of the city employees, I was yet again minding my own business, and uh, this crazy lady starts yelling my name, asking me where we're going to get our badges uh, for the next day of work, and I had no idea who she was, but she somehow knew me, and uh, it was Jam. We ended up hanging out and spending some time together, and she told me I was going to take her on a date, and uh, I then took her on that date because I was scared of her, and we, I guess, moved pretty quickly after that. Let me just clarify how I knew her name. So Jillian, myself, and one other person were like the only three that we're going to be dispatching. And so there was a email stirring with all of us between us and, you know, like HR. And I looked at the, it was myself and a coworker from my previous agency. And then one other person on this email and it was Jillian. Her email address was her first name dot her last name. Hmm. So then when we're all there at orientation and we're going to get our badges and they're sending us by division, right? So like, Dispatch was going together, you know, public works was going together. Well, if I'm, I was sitting next to the coworker that came with me to Dallas. So if it's not her and this other person is standing up to go with the police dispatchers and I remember the email, her name must be Jillian. So I'm not a crazy lady. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, no, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not from like that perspective. Um, but yeah, then we went and got our badges and I think I met you guys for, actually, I invited myself to get drinks with. Her and a, another coworker who was a call taker at the time for Dallas. Um, and yeah. So what year was that? That was 2015. So Jam, what kind of experience did you have before you got here? So I briefly touched on that earlier. So I worked for um, a really small agency. Again, it was Coppell, so north of Dallas. Um yeah, like 65 officers, only three fire stations, you know, four or five officers on a squad. I mean, day shift was a little busier because you had motors. So I don't know, 10. Um, it just and the it was a small town. So the call volume was not anything significant. Um, I think before I got to Dallas, I had never had a legitimate 15, a signal 15. Um, I'd never I think I did one felony traffic stop, maybe. Uh, we'd never gotten behind an occupied stolen. Like the list could go on. It was just a very different style of dispatching. Um, pretty like if they were, you know, going to a theft in progress, it was like, whoa, big deal. Um, so it's just a smaller, just a different kind of more chill environment. How did you adapt to that? Well, 
There were some struggles. Um, I can tell you there were some struggles. So I feel like the the part I appreciated about Dallas was our little like mini academy. So they didn't just dump you on the floor for on the job training. Like you did get some background knowledge and then you did like a day or so of like CAD training and then they put you on the floor with your um, with your trainer. It was a little bit difficult. I think um, I certainly didn't adjust as well as Jillian did. And we'll talk about what, how her training went and what they called the program after Jillian went through with training. Um, I think it just took me a little bit. My brain is not as linear as most folks as hers, certainly. So like, I don't, I struggled a little bit, but I got there. We did it. That's a great segue into Jillian's training. Yes. What did they this. call it? Go ahead, Jillian. They didn't call it anything. They, they sure people did. People made jokes. Oh, okay. I, uh, because there was obviously some staffing challenges at the time, uh, they did shorten my training to, uh, I think my third phase was only a week. And I then was cut loose and sent to uh, third watch. <laughs> so I did not have the same length training. Uh, it was a little fast-tracked. She also got a commendation during her training. you care to talk about that? I don't remember that at all. Do- I do. I was standing <laughs> behind her when it happened. Because it was a day that we got breaks for once, and I got up and I walked over to her channel. And she was sitting with her trainer, who really wasn't paying attention because the trainer didn't have to, because Jillian just had the channel. It was fine. She was sitting on channel four. And she was working a jumper... I think on the high five on 75 or 635 and an occupied stolen <laughs> simultaneously, seamlessly, no problem. That's a lot. That's a lot. And That's a lot super, of process. Was it a sergeant or the street supervisor, lieutenant, one of them wrote her accommodation for it. I honestly don't remember this. <laughs> well, as a, as a, as a supervisor, I want to get, you know, we, we've talked about it before in this podcast about giving people, you know, saying thank you or, or the great job that that's important. How, as a supervisor, do you try to improve morale with with commendations? We and where I'm at in Fairfax, we one have an awards program, mm. uh, and every year there is a for Telecommunicators Week in April, National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, to celebrate dispatchers. Uh, we have the awards that are handed out, so excellence in call taking, excellence in police dispatch, and so on, to recognize people who are going above and beyond in their craft. I know that's not everything. We also have specific event recognitions, so childbirths, uh, meritorious action, like things that can happen along the way to recognize that. I have always tried to acknowledge everybody's got staffing crisis right now. If there is a fully staffed dispatch center in the nation i would love to know where they are but if we have to cut breaks i think our group of supervisors is big on making sure we provide food for everybody nobody wants to cut breaks i mean i want to be clear they can still get up for 15 minutes which is a luxury not afforded to all departments but i think just those little things make the biggest difference to everybody and i personally with my current shifts check in with them every single day and if we have a CPR that they're taking I want to make sure and I'll ask them are you guys okay do you need anything because that follow-up can mean the world to some people no absolutely even even officers we 
there's a lot of young officers that are out there working their ass off going call to call and call and doing really good jobs and it's it's nice to know that it doesn't it doesn't go unnoticed by the supervisor and, and it's a small thank you to write somebody up and it can go in their jacket for their resume and it later on down there in their career it could mean a lot I think people focus on the negative things in their files. And I think it's important to balance that out with the positives because every single day, yeah, most of it's routine stuff we're doing, but to somebody else that means the world. And so if we get those compliments from community members or if we overhear something, just a, hey, you rock that, or I'm really proud of you. I think those words, I'm proud of you and I appreciate you probably mean more than anything to people. Jillian, we talked about earlier on uh, in this episode about you, all the physical hardships that you've you've been dealt. Um, can you talk about the diagnosis of MS and how that hit you? Uh, well, I had had a lot of back problems right before we ended up moving back to Virginia. And I had fallen one day and I had lost feeling in my left foot and part of my left foot. I thought I had just herniated another disc and that would be the end of it. But I progressively started losing feeling in my left leg. And it was a scary time because, you know, your body doesn't work. And if your foot can't feel the the ground, it won't hold you up. So you can't walk. And uh, I went to the doctor. They did a spinal fusion. He told me, though, he didn't think that would work to fix the rest of the problems. Ended up getting sent to Georgetown Hospital, which is one of the big hospitals in D.C., And they did a week of testing, came back, and uh, my doctor had told me, hey, look, if we're in the Tour de France, uh, Lance Armstrong's MS and all the other racers are other possible diseases. And I went back for a follow-up, and he looked at me and just said, Lance Armstrong won. And that was how he told me that I had been diagnosed with MS. And it was, I think, probably a relief at first because you finally have an answer um, and you kind of can start to figure out what that's going to look like moving forward. But I didn't have function in my left leg. I had no feeling. I know Kristen at one point uh, like poked me with something sharp just, just for fun. Uh, And I had no idea what that, I had no idea what that was. (laughs) I just saw her. I saw you do that. It was at my bridal shower. I think I did that out of love. I'm sure it was making, it sounds terrible. That was out of love. But I just continued, they put me in rehab, uh, physical rehab, to try to learn to walk again. And they sat there and said, I don't, I don't know that you're ever going to walk again. And that was a really crushing blow because what do you do with that? Somebody who likes to be active, I was golfing all the time and I, I didn't want to sit still. And so I was losing all of my outlets at that time. So it was... It was a long road. That was a long. That was a long story. That was a that was a really abbreviated version. I was going to say that. Yeah, actually, like there was there was a lot of time in between that where we were pretty sure it was MS, and the doctors were like, "Okay, but we have to exclude everything else first. So there was testing and testing and testing, um, and mostly a diagnosis for MS requires an MRI." which Jillian could not have at the time because she has a pacemaker due to another heart condition she had had between the WPW and the MS diagnosis. 
Um, so she couldn't have the MRI and it took a lot of testing to finally get to where they were like, this is MS and this is what's going on. Um, but you, I remember that you had lost, you were in a wheelchair, you were wheelchair bound for a while. And I legitimately didn't think you'd ever walk again. And it was, cause it wasn't just the doctors. I mean, I, we didn't talk to you about it, but I was like, I don't think she's going to walk again. I think that that's a pipe dream. And every time life threw something at you where we didn't think it was possible, you said, hell no. I think I'm very stubborn. And uh, I had a little pity party for a couple couple weeks after everything really started hitting me that I, I didn't have function at the time, not knowing why that was scary because I don't I don't know what's causing all of these things. And they sent me off to physical rehab and they kept just saying, oh, just try harder, just more physical therapy or strengthen your muscles. And I didn't know what else I had to give. And so I sat there and I just pushed and pushed and pushed myself and it was never enough. It, my leg wouldn't work anymore. And it was devastating. Like you're sitting there and you're being told you just need to try harder and you're trying as hard as you can. And that's not good enough. It's not good enough for your body. And I, there was a lot of days where I sat there and I mourned what I felt like I was losing. I, I guess I still had to grieve the loss of function of my body and not knowing what was happening. And I got fitted with a really awesome orthotic that allowed me to be able to take steps. It was cumbersome and expensive, but it gave me some sense of freedom. However, those things you guys take for granted, just getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I couldn't do without assistance. Or I had to have somebody that would pick me up when I fell or help me with basic daily activities that you need to survive, like going to the bathroom and showering. And I think that was probably the harder part, but... I didn't, I don't like to focus, I guess, on, uh, they told me I couldn't do it, but I wasn't going to accept that, I guess. How did you, I mean, you didn't want to accept that. How did you get to a point where you kept going, you were able to finally walk again, and that you just wouldn't take no for an answer? I think the biggest thing was uh, Jam is not good at laundry, and I was getting really tired of waiting on her to get the laundry done. You're so And I, I found out that she... I couldn't get into the laundry room at first. And so she was stacking stuff in there where I couldn't see it. And then she would stack. <laughs> That's accurate. That sounds so <laughs> much like a story for you guys, too. She would stack dishes in the sink where I couldn't see it at wheelchair height. I mean, uh, but they were right? There. And so I was like, That's, that can't keep happening. But I think overall, I needed to, I couldn't, I can't sit still. I couldn't do my job the way I wanted to in that wheelchair. So I had to find something else. Jam. So while you weren't stacking the plates flat and not taking the silverware off to keep the plates elevated. So she saw it. What kind of toll did this take on you? Um, you know, it, it had its days. I mean, I was really devastated for, her. I mean, I think when all of this kind of, I mean, her first, back surgery was six months into our dating. So not a a whole lot of time. Um, And, you know, she had several subsequent back surgeries and then all of this MS symptoms kind of all rolled into one. And unfortunately, a lot of the back symptoms, surgery symptoms and MS symptoms are the same. So 
she did gloss over a lot, which is fine. But there were like months of time where we didn't know what was going on. And it was a lot of back and forth. And um, I think I was concerned for her mental health, obviously, as well as physical health. Because there's just things you don't think about, right? You have to like rearrange your home and like what's you know, are the doors wide enough for the wheelchair to fit through? And how much does the wheelchair weigh? Because you have to carry it up and down the stairs or load it in the car. Um, you know, and she's right. She, you know, drinks Dr. Pepper like it's going out of style. And if she's on the couch and I'm not home, you know, she couldn't get a drink. Like that just loss of independence for even the smallest thing was a big deal. Um, I mean, and I'll let her talk about it if she wants to get into the whole when she got back to work a bit and how that changed with adapting, like physically having to adapt to dispatching with being wheelchair bound. What department were you working for? Them? Uh, with the diagnosis, I was working for Fairfax County. Okay. I think I had spent so much time off work. I When I first started exhibiting symptoms to when I made it back to work was six months. And I am so fortunate that my coworkers did not allow me to miss a single paycheck. They uh, picked me up when I really fell down because we were a family. And I had spent so much time off work just trying to figure out what life looked like, trying to move through a lot of the challenges that I have. And I mean, MS is a really shitty disease. It's uh, embarrassing. And there were a lot of symptoms that... I had, and I guess I'll just go all out and say that part of that is a loss of bladder control, and part of that is a loss of a lot of different functions that you have. And that's one thing when you're at home, and the safety and privacy are your home, and your wife knows that. She's not going to leave me because of that, but I got to go to work and contend with that. And so people, people have a really grave misunderstanding of MS and those symptoms. So transitioning, I think the mental aspect was difficult because... I then have to explain why I have to go to the bathroom however frequently or why I get annoyed when people make adult diaper jokes. And then the physical side of it, our building in Fairfax is massive. And that's, I was weak. That was a a lot to traverse. And then trying to dispatch. So you you step on a pedal to dispatch. And uh, that's how you communicate with officers in the field. We use a pedal. I didn't have a pedal that I could step on at that time, so we had to find a solution. And I'm very fortunate that my current assistant director was very supportive in ensuring that I had what I needed to be able to dispatch. So we found a little button, and I would tape the button on the console, and I would push it either with my stomach or my hand, depending on if I needed both my hands to type, and that's how I communicated. That's amazing. I the unknown i can't imagine having to deal with that from a mental and physical standpoint because misty and i have had several injuries in our in our life but we know we kind of know it's event the injuries we've had they're going to heal somewhat and we could get back but this was such an unknown for you i think what shaped a lot of my journey with ms was my grandmother uh, had ms and i saw what that looked like for her at the time she was bedbound for the entire time that we were growing up and she had a little electric scooter. It was yellow and you better get out of the way. Cause she'll run you over. 
but I, I knew catheters and bedbound, and I knew that scooter, and that was my vision of MS. But times had changed so much that I had to shift my narrative of what MS was going to look like. And drugs that have come out recently have just made such a tremendous impact that I think it changed the way I viewed things. But it took it took a little while to get out of that mindset, and I didn't always handle it gracefully, but here we are. How did you get back? Because obviously the listeners can't see you, but you're strong and you're mobile. And so how did you get back? I got started on a medication that is very aggressive for primary progressive MS. And uh, there's different types of MS. And there's some that are up and down. So you relapse and then you get back to where you were. Or primary progressive, that is just this slow decline. And I got started on that. And they... uh, one day I was talking to somebody and one of the nurses said, have you tried this medication? And I said, no. And she said, it's literally called the walking pill. And I Googled it and it is called the walking pill. And I went into the neurologist and I said, why am I not on this? And so they put me on it and they started some other medications to help with fatigue. And slowly through sheer determination, I wanted to surprise jam and uh, walk again. It was my biggest thing. And so I remember hiding it from her that I I felt like a little bit more feeling in my foot each day. And I just kept at it. And I was going to physical therapy twice a week and just pushing myself as hard as I could. And I would take little steps when Jam wasn't around. And uh, I remember surprising her for that because we couldn't walk. I couldn't walk unaided at my wedding. And that was a really big thing to me. And so to be able to surprise Jam with that. So I... Uh, I just kept at it. And then I was on the golf course every week and just trying to be as active as possible because I think that made a big difference and shifting my mindset from a woe is me to a why am I letting this keep me down thing. As cliche as that may sound, I think that made a big difference. And you've actually, you've had to relearn how to walk a couple of times. So it's not like you just went wheelchair bound and then we're walking again. Like you've had some I don't want to call them relapses because I think that's the wrong word, but where you've lost function again and you've had to relearn how to walk again. Um, And at this point, it's like Jam and I having conversations on the side or just with you where you're like, did you talk to Jam about this? About how we're like, she needs to slow down just a little bit because she's playing golf every day and she's walking around and we would like you to just rest your leg a little bit more, rest your body a little bit more, but... It's impressive that you, you, we have to try to get you to slow down at this point. I think relearning how to walk was probably the most humiliating, humbling, and uh, scary process of my life. Because you take it for granted when you're a baby, you don't remember learning how to walk typically. And I know why kids fall all the time. And I, I fell a lot. And... So I I don't take that for granted. And I think the reason I push so hard now to keep where I'm at is I know there will be a day that I won't be able to walk again. And I know there will be a day that all of the things that people take for granted, I will not have that ability anymore. And I'm unwilling to settle for anything less while I can. So I want to go out and golf even when people are yelling at me or I want to not sit on a chair or a bench to shower just to conserve energy because I cherish standing up in a shower and not having to use a handheld shower device or any sort of assistive devices. So 
I know I'm stubborn to a fault and I probably hurt myself sometimes when I shouldn't have, but I don't want to take it for granted. So whenever July 7th happened, you're recovering from a back surgery, right? But that is, this wasn't, this was before the MS. It was before the MS. Okay. Has it, can you describe that uh, that night? And, and Jam, I want you to jump in here too as well. You were actually you were working dispatch for Channel Four. Okay, so that night kicks off for around nine thirty uh, on July seventh. And Jam, can you kind of talk about how that went from your perspective? And then I want Jillian to jump in and Jillian explain where she was and how that affected her. Yeah, so um, Jill was off that night recovering from her back surgery, and I was working. Um, so for those of you who don't know, dispatch is, Dallas Dispatch is in the basement of City Hall, and it's, I don't know that it's a small room, it's not large really either, but the room is essentially divided down the center. So one side of the room is north side of the city, the channels, and then the other side is the south side of the city. And it's, you know, four consoles on each side. Um, that night I was sitting on the, if you, like you walk into the room, I was on the left side, which is south side of the city. And I was sitting on channel four, um, which is the closest console, like to the very front of the room, like furthest away from the entrance doors of the room when you walk in. Um, so it was just a normal night. Like we knew that there was going to be... Um, the event going on, like we knew that there was going to be the um, parade, if you want to call it, like we knew that there was going to be an event. So based on where I was sitting in the room, the dispatcher that was working the event had her own like console and channel. I think it was like a tag channel, like channel 12. She was sitting working the event. So there was a, a dispatcher just for that. Um, it was just a normal night. Like everything was fine. And then Literally, like, I wish I could, for the listeners, describe the distance between my console and hers. Maybe, like, five feet. I mean, it was pretty close. It was right next to where I was sitting. Um, the officer just keys up, and you just hear gunfire. That's it. Like, automatic gunfire. Um, and then I think somebody else keyed up and said, shots fired. And then it just kind of went to hell. Um, the, I give the dispatcher credit who worked the event because that's something a dispatcher never ever wants to hear and this I think we knew instantly that it was going to be a like a large scale thing because then officers kept keying up and you just kept hearing more and more gunfire so within the first I don't know I'd say like two minutes maybe I think there was we knew that maybe there was an officer down and it was the decision was made by the supervisors standing in the room one of the sergeants, I believe, uh, to call a citywide signal one or signal 15, an assist. So then essentially what that means is all the dispatchers on all the channels keyed up and basically told all the officers, there's a citywide assist, you know, here's the location in channel one downtown, essentially clear off what you're doing and everybody's going to go. And that's, that's extremely unique for to have happen, especially in the city of Dallas, that there is a citywide assist in a city this large. Everybody just go, go 
drive, run to the gunfire, right? Yeah. I didn't even honestly think that that was even a thing. Like they announced it and I took a second and I was like, holy shit. Like this is historic, essentially. Like this is not something that happens on the daily. Um, And then all the kind of moving parts, everybody started. And then so since the location of the assist was actually downtown because that's where the event was going on. It meant that the dispatcher on channel one had to handle everybody that was coming in. So he basically took over the assist and coordinated everything. And he did an absolutely amazing job. Um, And so then it kind of shifted back to the back of the room behind where I was sitting. Um, But everybody was tuned in. And of course, once all of the channels dispatch all of their officers from a dispatch perspective since we want to keep tabs on where everybody is and you have to know where everyone's going all the dispatchers started adding all of their units onto this event which on channel one right so you're just adding units adding units and cad crashed within five minutes it just couldn't take the load so now imagine this craziness is happening on the radio our cad is down we have no way to do anything so people are like handwriting, starting to just handwrite where units are, what's notes, what's coming on on the air, because we don't have any way to track it. Can you describe what CAD is for the listeners? Yes, I'm sorry. So CAD is computer-aided dispatch. So I mentioned it before. Essentially, that's how dispatchers dispatch police in the fire department. It's the system that's used for entering calls and then the program that just essentially runs dispatch. So if it crashes and you don't have the access to that, that's a big deal. So officers out there listening, that's pretty similar to your in-car computer. It's crashing and you're having to write things down or, like, you know, go to a more manual approach. Uh, back, you know, 80s, 90s, early 90s, because, you know, we had, we actually had computers when Misty and I heard on in, in uh, the late 90s, and uh, it was uh, looking at it. From how it was then till now, it's it's night and day. Jillian, where were you when this was going on? Uh, I ended up, I was at home with my sister. We had gone to dinner that night and got home and we're sitting on the couch and Jam just texted the word citywide assist. And I've never seen Kristen move so fast in my life. She jumped up and got a portable radio out and started listening. And I believe that was right before uh, one, I remember, I think it was Sergeant Smith. Um, Yes, Mike Smith. Mike Smith. We uh, turned it on right before he was shot and Kristen put a uniform on and left. I had no car, so everybody took my car somehow. Um, I had no way of going anywhere. And so I'm stuck there on a couch and my sister's at work. I can't, nobody can respond to text messages. Everybody's busy and I rightfully so, but you're sitting there helpless. I I can't communicate with my wife who's at dispatch and get updates because they were so insanely busy at that moment. And it was so emotional for them. And then I'm sitting there worrying about my family out there and a bunch of officers that I knew were downtown that you know you forge these relationships with it was the most helpless feeling i think and i remember waking up the next morning because i went to bed before kristen got home and 
running outside to see if that car was there. And it was probably the biggest wash of relief because I knew that I was so fortunate when people weren't, other families weren't. That day and night affected the city and still affects the city. And I can't imagine being a dispatcher. I mean, I, watching it unfold on the TV was bad enough, but being in the middle of it, um, like Jam, you're, I can't imagine that sound. It's a unique, on a, on a smaller scale, 9-11 type incident, just citywide assist and just catastrophe, just pure catastrophe, what happened that night. And then those guys, it, it was several hours before that was settled. I mean, hours, they... Yeah, I mean, midnight's dispatch, midnight dispatch was already on for several hours before anything. And just to, like, make a point, so once CAD crashed, emergencies don't stop, right? So calls continued to come in, and we had to dispatch, like, I remember sending units to a 6XE, so like a, a domestic violence situation, a serious one. And all I could give them was like, here's the address. And that's pretty much it. (laughs) Like you couldn't put officers on it. You couldn't keep track of, I mean, that was kind of it. So they, they were going blind. Basically they didn't, we didn't have any of the resources that we rely on to help us be successful at our job and keep everybody safe. Like those weren't an option and they just kept coming. Picking up you, what you, did you go back to work the next day? Was I off? I think I was actually off. You had days off next. I did. Um, and I don't remember if they... So I know that some of the some of the people from my shift stayed over, like into midnights. Well, mainly the dispatcher that was working on Channel 1 stayed because he was still working the event. Um, but like other dispatchers, I think, stayed to support him and then help out. Um as far as I know, nobody called out the next day after. If they were, like it was their shift, they came to work. Like you just came in the next day. Were you guys asked to stay longer than your shifts a lot? Oh, uh, yes. Like just daily. Yeah. So mandatory overtime was a thing. Um, I think actually when we got hired, they mentioned it. Like, hey, you're signing this document that says mandatory overtime can be something that we can apply if, you know, staffing needs it. Um, but the, I think the detrimental part of that is there wasn't a lot of notice for us. So because it was so short staffed, people wouldn't come in for their shift and you wouldn't get told, you know, five or 10 minutes before your shift ended, your supervisor would come up to you and say, Hey, you're going to stay another eight. And that's it. Like you couldn't say no. So you had to sit uh, maybe in no channel. So again, no break. So I've sat 16 hours at a console without being able to get up. Now that's not every night for sure. But I think the emotional and mental toll that that takes um, is overwhelming because, and I, d- I don't take it for granted now that at the end of my 12 hours, I get to go home. I'm not being held over. And to be in such a busy place as Dallas where you're just constantly doing something and then a couple of minutes before the end of your shift, you're being told, hey, you're working a 16. 
And it wasn't once a week necessarily. It was sometimes two or three times a week because it certainly went by seniority. And we were low man on the totem pole. And so the not having that downtime, a break to get up for a moment and just take a breath and then to be working 16-hour days so frequently is incredibly harmful, I think, to people's mental well-being and their ability to stay sharp. At 16 hours, you're exhausted. And the likelihood that you can make mistakes continues to rise. If you elect to work a 16-hour day, you're, you're taking that responsibility on saying, I can do this. But if you're forced to routinely do that, that, that wears you down. And I know I have not been my sharpest at the end of a 16-hour day before. And I, I had to do it in Southeast. I was dispatching for Kristen. And it was truly 3 a.m. before I had all the calls dispatched and you're just on edge. You're tensed up the entire time. All right, Miss Jillian, we talked about staffing issues. Okay. And the 16 hour shift, I've, I've only worked a, I think I worked a 20 hour shift and that sucked, but there was an incident involved and I was exhausted, but you communicate people in communications and in this field, they routinely, have to work long hours um is that is that pretty widespread in this in this field uh, uh, communications of short staffing and how is that usually dealt with i think the majority of agencies throughout the country are short staffed it's a chronic thing because i think people don't realize the uh mental and emotional toll that the job takes at times or people don't realize how difficult it can be, either the computer, the multitasking, you've got to know geography, there's so many categories that people don't realize play into it. So we end up with, you're either there for 20 years, or you are a brand new person, there's not a whole bunch of people in the in the between there. I think a lot of agencies, so with Dallas, they just mandated people. The way we're combating it currently is mandatory overtime. We sign up for a certain number of days of mandatory overtime to fill slots to ensure that we have the staffing because I sympathize. I work that mandatory overtime too, but the person on the other end of the line, they don't care if we've worked 16 hours. They don't care if it's 10 or 12 or 13 days in a row. They care about that emergency being addressed. So it's it's hard because I sympathize and I nobody wants to go in for mandatory overtime, but it right now is for a lot of agencies the only way to combat it is to hold people over or to mandate them. Yeah. So how do you how do you get away? I mean, okay, the work is always going to have to be done, and you could have three good days in a row where it's pretty a light a light few days, and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose for three straight days. It, there's really no Usually, most a lot of a lot of people in uh, in professions they go to work and they kind of know what to expect, right? In y'all, in in first responder world, we don't know what to expect every day because we could have some light days. And in, in, in dispatching, y'all know what it's kind of going to look like. You're going to sit down, you're going to be engaged with a screen, and you're going to have voices in your ear all day, and you're going to have to quarterback for the first responders the best you can. When you're working these long hour, these long days, do you, as a supervisor, do you have a process that you get with your, you huddle with your employees after, and you kind of debrief 
and are there programs and, and that agencies that you've seen put in place to kind of help help their employees decompress or just process and have a better work-life balance? For me, with my employees, if especially because currently I'm dealing with uh, mostly newer employees who are doing on-the-job training for call-taking, I find it very important after big calls to go talk to them and to just check and make sure they're okay. I always encourage people, especially if they are struggling after something, to t- get up and take a break, to take that moment, because if not, it will just snowball down into their performance. I am very big and I probably spend half my day walking around talking to my little group of people and just engaging with that just to be present so they know that they have that support. I think mainly just making sure they feel seen so we can combat that. I'm very happy that our agency has partnered with our occupational health center and we now have a program. We have our own peer support program, which has been amazing and helpful even for me in my personal life. So we have trained people that can help us day to day, but we also have professionals uh, outside of our occupational health center that they can talk to us in that moment if we're struggling. We also have EAP through our insurance providers. So we have a lot of resources where I'm at now. We have quiet room where you can go sit and watch TV and just be in a dark room and relax. And we have coworkers, but it's it's not that way everywhere. I can safely say it wasn't that way when I was here in Dallas. So I think it's probably something we need to work on as an industry. I think that where that can start and what I really admire and respect about you is you really lead by example. And so, you know, when you're talking about work-life balance and you guys will sometimes get called in on overtime because, you know, short-staffed. And I've heard you say that you'll go in for your people because you don't want them to have to go in. Um, Or if they're going in, you're going in because it's not fair to be sending people that work for you in if you're not going in. Um, So I think, can you talk about in terms of leadership and as a supervisor, how you can really impact the wellness of your employees and the wellness and setting the example for the community or the agency? I think that's hard for me because I do struggle with a work-life balance. I'm very happy to lecture my my people on it, but I'm not great at practicing it. So I, I know I don't model those behaviors the way I should. I am very cognizant of where my people are at. I lecture one who likes to work 16-hour days all the time because I want to make sure that he's okay. However, I, I think as leaders, we have to start and we have to be the people to say, this is how we want this to look. People will follow if you show that. And if people feel that you care, they're so much more willing to go the extra mile and to step up. I don't know. I had somebody once say the only reason they responded to a staffing page when we asked for help was because they knew if the reverse had happened that I would be in there with them. And that means the world. But I think people just want to know that we're in the trenches with them. And if you are, people will do that. They'll, They'll step up. Yeah, leading by example is really big. And and, uh, and Misty, you were in SWAT. You, you made a point to lead by example. And when I was out in the field, that that's really important because your troops, they want to know that you're willing to get down in the trenches with them and, and, and fight. And 
Kristen tells her, I, you're always working, you, you know, and jam. <laughs> Y'all are always working. And, and what shift are you on now? I am currently overseeing our call taker trainees. When they graduate our academy, we have our own one for communications. I oversee their on-the-job training. So I, at the moment, work Wednesdays to Saturdays, which is, Kristen's putting quotes up because that's, allegedly, I only work Wednesdays to Saturdays, but uh, I like to try and step up when I can. Uh, It's not conducive to seeing jam because my hours and days do not align with our schedules, but. Well, that, you, I mean, you just, that's when you make just the conscious effort to make the best of that quality time, make quality time when you can. I think that's why we're here with you guys spending our, um, our vacation with everybody else. That's our version of quality of time, I think. And yet you're in front of another microphone while you're on vacation. <laughs> Maybe that's where we're at home. Yeah. <laughs> I think we try. Maybe you'll start listening to this podcast now that you're going to be on it. Probably not now. Oh. I think that we, especially Jam, she's been very good in trying to join. Like my passion is golf and Jam will go out with me even if she hates it and doesn't play at all. She'll go drive a cart and get beers and bring clubs to me. So I think it's just a compromise and trying to find the energy to communicate even if you're at the end of the day you have nothing else left or missing out on sleep just to spend some time together. I think from my perspective I get to see Jillian in the supervisory role because I'm on the floor taking calls when you know she's up on what we call the bridge uh, like a basically like an elevated platform in the middle of the room where all the supervisors like that's their little place um she is a console there so I get to see her working all day but I think the difference that her position like it's it's new but what she gets the ability to do is she really does lead by example because she would be the first one to like sit down at a console and take calls or do police relief or meal relief or if they're working a fire incident and they need a fire dispatcher if she was able to do it and she was there she would go plug in and be a fire dispatcher and that's not often what some of the other supervisors will do they're not necessarily as willing to get in those roles that not that I want to say they like moved beyond, but I think some of them feel like it's no longer their job. And I, she is not the one that prescribes to that belief system, right? Like she, other than just the element of literally keeping up her skills, so she could continue to do those things and do them well at the level that she does them at. I think it really does boost morale. And it is huge. I know just from a personal standpoint, if I saw my supervisor plug in next to me and take calls, I'd be like, hell yeah, man, thanks for sending it out with me, right? Because it's it's can be an ass kick sometimes. And she really tries to essentially like she's not going to make her employees do anything that she's not willing to do. And I think that's a tremendous quality that more leaders need to have in the industry. She doesn't have anything to say about that. <laughs> so... Be, being a a workhorse while in the office and and on the headset, but you're also a workhorse when it comes to you're you're 
your physical health is a daily constant struggle. And do your workers, they probably see that as well to some point. And that's also inspiring. I know a lot of people before I promoted saw the damage mentally that I had from the diagnosis and just being in the wheelchair. And I'm sure I made life hell for people because I was just angry at the world. And so I know that that was seen and I know that people have seen that shift in me. Um, I know I missed a day of work the other day and one of my employees texted me and he was like, hell must have frozen over. Like, are you okay? Because you're not here. And so I think it feels good that people recognize that. I think people can physically see when I walk that I'm not okay or that I'm struggling that day. I probably get yelled at by them more uh, than my own wife uh, if I'm not resting enough. So I think it is that big family. They're looking out for me, but I'm going to push for them to make sure that they feel that they're taken care of. I don't know if inspirational is the thing, but I think it's, I think they can appreciate it. I think it's inspiring to, to not only work at a high level, but also when you see somebody it's like an athlete fighting through an injury, right? And they're, and they're still performing at a high level, and you know that they're, it's, it's a struggle to fight and push push harder. It's inspiring, Jillian. Thank you, sir. Why are you all red? <laughs> um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about the book, uh, the great Dr. Tanya Glenn, she, she put out. It's uh, Heart Under the Headsets. It's her latest book, and it really is touching on a topic that we're doing the same thing we're doing today. And it's a, it's getting kind of a peek behind the curtain of the, the voice that, that first responders here and you being the quarterback and you, you're the one telling us where to go and what to do and doing it in a way that puts us in a better position to be successful and, and also keeping us as safe as you can. Uh, you've read the book, right? I have. Okay. And you're also, uh, you're one of the featured picks in the book that, uh, Dr. Glenn, you sent, you sent some picks and I, I made that introduction and she was more than happy to meet you. And, um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I am very appreciative that the book came out. I think it's something that needs to be talked about. And I think I'm guilty of it myself that it's, we tend to negate a lot of our emotions surrounding how we feel after calls or dispatches because we're not there. So to us, it can't be as bad as what people are experiencing when they're seeing, hearing, smelling, touching things. I shouldn't say hearing, but when you're going through that in person, it that's an understandable trauma. But I think this kind of allows people to see that this is a version of trauma, hearing these things and not having that control is traumatic in its own right and that you shouldn't be ashamed of that because I know I minimize my own experiences a lot. And I think it's incredible that there's a platform to say, this is okay to feel this way. This is, it's validating. And I think that's what we need because it opens up a conversation that we're able to have and that we need to be having the same way that a big push allegedly that I've heard from this podcast is that officers talk more about what they're seeing and going through 
so that they can process because there is trauma, destigmatizing it for dispatchers who already feel less than and not seen, giving them a platform to say you are traumatized by these things too, is empowering. Well, and, and thank you. Dispatchers are a true vital component of the first responder family, and I think the, they get forgotten. I, I think it's, and I understand how that happens, because we're behind a screen, we're a face you don't see. And uh, one of our old directors in Fairfax used to call it the first of the first responders, and I thought that was super hokey. And I give so much credit to Texas because they recognize dispatchers as first responders. In Virginia, we do not have that yet. We are, not, we are considered clerical workers. And the difference between somebody, and absolutely not besmirching that profession, but the difference between what we're doing every day when we're providing CPR instructions or we're delivering babies or we're doing these things is so very different than somebody in an administrative role in a job because you're not hearing that. You're not... You're... Somebody's life does not depend on your actions in that moment. And uh, so I, th- I think it's awesome when people recognize that dispatchers do make a difference. Uh, I think we all say we don't need that, but hearing it is, is rewarding. Jillian, I have one final question uh, before we wrap this up. With all your experiences and... You're, what you're going to continue to do and you're going to continue to grow as a professional and, and as a leader and you're going to learn new things and you're going to you're still always learning the complex human mind and, and being a boss you're seeing all kinds of different characteristics, all kinds of different personalities what would you tell a young up and coming dispatcher what skill set they need to sharpen I think a couple, if I may. The first is protect your reputation and protect your integrity. Uh, I We teach an ethics class as part of our state certification, and we always talk about the Washington Post test is, are these actions, it, if you see them in the news, is that going to... Is that going to make you feel good? Is that going to make you feel proud? And uh, the fastest way out of the job is to lie. And so I think that would be the first one. The second one would be never stop learning. Always admit that we are human and there's going to be mistakes made and just take accountability for that. Have fun. You're going to work holidays. Don't complain. And I think just know that there's no shame in asking for help when you struggle with a call. There's no shame in asking for help if you need another set of ears when you're dispatching high priority calls or longer pursuits or chases. We need to ask for help. We need to destigmatize it, not just from a mental health aspect, but also lending a hand. I think it used to be very uncommon that if somebody had a childbirth or a CPR, we would frequently have somebody else plug in with them. And uh, that never happened before, and it's starting to happen more and more now. And I think that's an important thing that we're showing we are a team and we're there for each other. And we're not going to judge you if you're upset. I think those would be the main ones. I think that's a great way to wrap this up. Um, and I just, you really are one of the people that I admire the most. I think you're one of the strongest people I know. Um, and you've always risen to any challenge that's come at you. And I 
really do look at your leadership skills and hope to be more like that um, in just my everyday life, my job. So thank you. You're an exceptional human being and you just touched all of our listeners' lives. And I hopefully, if your warrior spirit is not activated by listening to this wonderful guest, then I don't know what will do it. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for spending a day with us here in the nurturing bosom of the owl office. (laughs) I can't wait to get this episode out and everybody hear the incredible story of Jillian Etheridge and her beautiful wife, Jam. Thank you. Thank you. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey Mrs. Hey Mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon, I'll never give up on you. Down when you're lonely, I'll pull you up. Leaves you heavy when the going gets tough. I'll be your shoulder, together we'll run up from the bottom. Yeah, we'll rise above. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs. Amen. I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you I'll never give up on you.